my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Toby Travis. He is an executive coach, a consultant, superintendent, and author. Dr. Travis is the founder of Trusted, a framework for business, organization, and school improvement focused on developing trusted leaders. In addition, he is an executive consultant with the Global School Consulting Group, an adjunct professor for the International Graduate Program of Educators for the State University of New York College at Buffalo, and an experienced teacher and school administrator currently serving as the superintendent of the Village Christian Academy in Fayetteville, North Carolina. As a guest speaker, trainer, and consultant, his work has taken him throughout the United States and Europe, South Asia, Central and South America. Dr. Travis is the author of the award-winning book, Trusted, The Bridge to School Improvement. It's available at Amazon. It's been featured in Forbes and named Book of the Month and nominated for Book of the Year in 2021 by The Magic Pen. I am thrilled to speak with you this morning, Dr. Travis. I really appreciate you agreeing to uh, allow this interview to happen. Um, and I'm just really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Dave. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, sir. Um, I, I always like to get things started off with getting a feel for the person I'm talking to uh, by starting off where it all began. Um, where, where were you born and raised? Uh, grew up in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania, almost to the New York state line, upstate New York area. So that's where uh, that was, is home still with a lot of family that is there. Uh, youngest of six boys, uh, rural upbringing, you know, first jobs were uh, tossing a bale of hay and scraping a barn and, and those, that kind of upbringing, you know, it was a kind of an agricultural community. Um, uh, dad worked in a shoe factory and uh, yeah, my mom was a, a paralegal and um, while they, you know, raised all those boys. So that was, um, you know, that was my early, early years and uh, also have uh, lived and worked in uh, Minnesota, uh, Carolinas, uh, internationally. I was in Ecuador for many years. And uh, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's been a, an unexpected journey coming from, you know, a country kid uh, grow alongside a, a creek in, the, in, the, in a valley to uh, having the opportunity to really travel and see the world and uh, have opportunity to work with some really amazing, amazing folks. Uh, and, and that has, you know, really what's shaped us isn't what shapes all of us are, are those that we have the opportunity to interact with. And uh, we, we become uh, the influencers who influenced us. So uh, that's, that's kind of a, a, a snapshot, I guess. 
who were your major influences and, and what really led you onto this path uh, to higher education and, and actually to, to go into education? Well, I think I've always been blessed by having a mentor, uh, almost uh, really right to this day. There are older gentlemen in my life. Uh, I think I began with my grandfather. So my mom's dad uh, was a real mentor to me. And then even in my young adult life, uh, uh, one of my very first jobs, uh, there was an older gentleman that was looking to retire and I kind of came in as his protege. Um, and then that situation uh, repeated itself in several uh, work corporate environments that I was in over the years where there was an older gentleman who uh, was a trusted leader and modeled what that looked like to me. And, and so I, I think as far as that being a passion of the whole leadership track is just, I've been fortunate to have uh, relationships and being mentored by uh, some really gifted uh, and trusted educational and, and organizational leaders. As far as getting into education itself, I really have to credit teachers. You know, you know, and then that's the story of so many who end up in education. It was a, you know, it was a teacher or a group of teachers in their own experience that influenced their lives. Uh, really, were again, they were part of those that that mentoring process or those mentors in my life. Where I have to point back to teachers. So I, I think very early on, although it took me decades to actually get in to education. I was uh, focused on other areas uh, before I ended up actually going into the classroom, but really coming at, even out of high school. Originally, I, I went right into a music education program, but was not employed in music education until about 30 years later. But it was always, always an interest, always a passion because of what was modeled to me uh, as a teenager. I'm really interested in, in talking to you. We, we discussed this uh, dynamic a little bit before uh, hitting record, but you know, I, I told you a little bit about people in the audience that, you know, I talked to veterans and first responders a lot that are, are leaders or leaders that have uh, struggled with PTSD. Um, a lot of times because of uh, the symptoms that go along with PTSD, there are some poor decisions that are made in our lives. A lot of times we'll find ourselves flat on our face um, just due to making poor decisions either in our professional life or our personal life. And that can lead to uh, disrupting the, the trust levels that people give us. Um, and I, I really want to talk about, or actually learn from you, how somebody can recover from that loss of trust and, and really those, those areas of leadership that are so important and, and rely on the level of trust that's put in the leaders. Um, and I, I couldn't think of a, a better environment to really put that to the test than in, in the schools where, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, it just really doesn't seem that in our culture, uh, teachers are valued as much as they should be. Right. And, and when put in that environment where they're, they're trusted with people's children and they're trusted with, with giving them an education, but really um, having their hands tied with a lot of things. Uh, so 
I was just wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about your book and, and what inspired you to write it. Well, that really came out of my doctoral program. And so let's go back to what inspired me to even go to that level and get involved. So uh, my first teaching experience in a formal classroom setting. So I, I had been um, a, a seminar leader in workshop. I actually produced a, a touring theatrical program for years. So I was in the entertainment world. and But a lot of that work um, we would tour shows on college and high school campuses literally around the world. And, and I always had this passion for education. So that was a, a nice fit. But then when I finally made that transition into formal education, I've got to be honest, Steve, I was, I was shocked at how toxic the work environment was. And, and, and just the dysfunctional nature of what was going on between uh, employees and administration. And, and at first I thought, oh, this is, this is just a bad environment in this school. Well, it didn't take me long to realize, no, this is a pretty common problem in, in many, many, many schools. Now, fortunately, not all. And, and it's a common problem in many work environments as well. Just the, the dysfunctional nature of relationships between owners and employees or managers and supervisors and, and those that they're leading. So that then led, as I had the opportunity to get into a doctoral program, I had good counsel from one of my mentors was, hey, figure out really, you know, what you want your dissertation to be about as you go into, so, you know, go figure that out at an advance before you go into the, the, the hard work of the classes and the research, obviously. Good counsel. And another friend of mine, and maybe, and I would highly recommend it as a guest if you haven't had him already, uh, David Horsager wrote a book called Trust Edge. Uh, and it went number one on the Wall Street Journal uh, some years ago. And Dave's been a friend for many years. And he actually came and worked with me. Then as I got into his school administration in an international school, he came and actually worked with me for a time, uh, came down, spent about a week with our team. That was phenomenal, the work that he did. And Dave's work is with Fortune 500 companies. And what I realized in going through his training was the concepts were universal, but the application to schools and their needs really needed some additional research and some additional work. And that, that's what I jumped into, was then identifying, okay, what are the, the core competencies, if you will, or excuse me, the, 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 the core elements of trusted leadership. What does that look like in a school setting? And then specifically, how do we assess it? How do we uh, protect it? How do we build it? How do we improve it? How do we develop action plans that ensure we have measurable growth in, in improving those trusted relationships? And, and that's really where the book came out then was as a uh, uh, is really as a resource that came out of that doctoral work that turned into training and consulting now that I've been doing for years with, with school leaders. Uh, you know, okay, how do we get our arms around this very complex idea of trust? Because we use a small word to really describe a whole bunch of different things. And trust is complex and it's fragile. You know, it takes years to develop and consistency to develop and it can be lost in a moment. And so you really have to have structures and disciplines in place to ensure it's protected and have to regularly assess it, 
and, and continually develop um, and ensure uh, protocols, practices. It's not just about behaviors. Uh, schools are famous and as are some businesses for creating structures and practices that actually decrease the level of trust in the relationship between uh, employees or faculty and, and leadership. So that's, that's the kind of work now that I'm involved in it. And the why behind it was just to see uh, that when those things get better, everything gets better. You know, there's been business studies that show um, profit lines go up. I mean, literally, I think it's 180% in those businesses that have high levels of trusted leadership. In schools, we have found direct correlation between teacher retention, teachers stay long, you know, in that role, they stay longer at those schools. We have seen direct correlation to student achievement levels. Kids perform better if the leadership is trusted. And, and there's direct correlation to those kind of results. So there's plenty of whys as to what we, you know, why we should do this. Uh, it has, uh, it is the number one indicator of successful schools and organizations, trusted leadership. It's what it's all about. You mentioned that the schools are notorious for uh, putting in place structures that deteriorate the trust. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about those? Yeah, and you know, it's it's well intended. So I and I I, I don't want to get political at all here uh, because I, I really do believe that those who are placed, especially like the public school sector at the district level, they've been given almost an impossible job. And so what they're trying to do is well intended. However, the more we put accountability systems uh, in place, those accountability, accountability systems uh, are based on an assumption of distrust. We don't trust our employees to be professionals and do their job. Therefore, we, we put these accountability systems in place. And yet what we have found over and over and over again in global research on this topic is the more teachers are treated as professionals, expected to be professionals, so and we're also setting high expectations, but given as much autonomy as possible, the higher the performance, the greater the level of innovation, um, the greater student improvement levels, the greater and increased level of parent involvement, and, and you know, all kinds of benefits when we operate from a level of trust. So let me give you a really practical, uh, and, and this works if we've got listeners who are in the business model or, or education. Some of the work that I do, in fact, I'm working with a new client right now who just sent me uh, their employee manual, uh, their student handbook, anything that has policy in it, basically. And part of the job that I do is I go through those documents to look and see, okay, is there anything currently in their systems that is creating a, or is based on a level of distrust? And some of the initial work we can do as organizations is just get self-reflective on, okay, are, are, we, are we creating a system of distrust? Uh, you know, so if, if we have something in place that is there because somebody broke the rules. You know, and often that's what happens in organizations is somebody blew it. So instead of just addressing that individual's problem and issue, we create a policy. You know, we think we're going to fix it by policy. That really doesn't work. And what happens is the more we do that, the more toxic the work environment becomes. So first part is just, okay, let's reflect on our systems, our policies and practices. Is there anything here that we are currently doing that is creating a level of distrust. For example, in the, you know, the school area, we, we look at like lesson plans. 
right? Okay, what are our requirements of teachers in submitting their lesson plans? Now, if it's a new teacher or it's a teacher who needs professional development and they're struggling, uh, it might make sense to, yes, you need to submit a lesson plan every week to your supervisor. But what I counsel is only if that supervisor is gonna interact with that lesson plan and actually give you helpful feedback to move forward. If there's no feedback being provided, there's no point in submitting the plan. It has no value. It's bureaucracy. Stop it. Let them be professionals and do their work. You know, it's the same as a teacher. Um, there, there is no point in me giving an assignment to the student if I'm not going to give them valuable and individualized feedback so that they can learn from their interaction with the assignment. Same thing in our management uh, is, okay, what policies, what practices are we making our employees jump through? Do they have value and meaning? And if you're saying, well, they need accountability to do it, well, then you've hired the wrong person. You know, and it comes back to that hire well and support well. I want to go in uh, this other direction here where when the trust is broken, okay, yeah, right. How, how does a leader repair that? And that's really complex, Dave, because often what happens in leadership roles, let's say you're, you're a new hire, right? You've been brought in and, and this happens, you know, as a consultant, I brought in, usually they call me because there's a trust problem, right? And, and what's happened though, often is leaders have come into a situation and they realize, oh my goodness, my predecessor was toxic or they had some big blunder. So they didn't even create the problem, but it's now their problem. Right. And, and folks are going to be skeptical of their leadership and, and, and they really have to do intentional work to build it. So uh, how do you repair trust? Well, it's very similar to how you build trust to begin with. But it's, and there will be a caveat at the end here as far as those who have actually broken the trust. And it's not rocket science. It goes like this. Step one is make promises and keep them. So in my coaching sessions, often what I'll do is I'll talk with the leader about, okay, what, what desires, what aspirations, what hopes do your employees have uh, about the work environment, work situation that you can say yes to fairly rapidly? You know, what promise could you make to your team and deliver literally within a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, but short-term this here. We're not talking long-term strategic planning here. There's a place for that, but that's not what we're talking about here because trust is built by making promises and keeping them. So let's think through, okay, what promise could I make and carry through? And maybe it's something very, very simple. You know, maybe it's, uh, right, hey, everybody, uh, you, you are all going to get, uh, you know, an extra... You know, 30 minutes at lunch tomorrow, or you know, whatever it may be. Um, find something that you can deliver and then deliver and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again because trust is built through a consistency of action and that you carry through. In the book, we, uh, I use a bridge as an analogy that goes throughout uh, the book um, about how we build trust. And just like a bridge has these six components that work together, and they've all going to be in place for you to trust the bridge, same thing with our leadership. So in what I call the substructure of trusted leadership, it's, it's all about kinetic and supporting everything that we do 
to our foundation, which is all about what we say we believe in our values. And this is where trust is most frequently lost in leaders, is they have articulated their bridge foundation, which is this is what we believe about who we are, what we do, how we work, these are my values. But then what they do in their actual leadership and in the organizational structure and the delivery of their product or of their services, it does not line up with who they say they are. Boom, you lose trust. So this idea of consistency of, hey, if I say, and it, uh, again, I'll use the education sector because it's what I'm most familiar with. But if I say to my teachers, you are my highest value. Teachers are the essence of the school. It's not the building. It's not the sports program. It's not technology. It's you. But I'm not out there in front fighting for high levels of teacher compensation and benefits and, uh, uh, you know, improving their work environment. Uh, it's baloney. No, because we, we know that the, what's called contingency rewards, I mean, what's, what's the most valued contingent reward is money, right? So it's like, you tell me you value me, but you don't pay me, or you don't fight at least for a pay increase that's in alignment with the cost of living. No, no you're, you're just talking, and I'm not going to trust you. So that's the, you know, that, that's the, the first step in restoring trust is make promises, Keep them. Can you share a, a practical strategy or practice that, that helps to increase the level of trust in a leader? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's lots of them. Yeah. Uh, oh, before we go to there, Dave, let me just make a comment on the restoration. So in the book, I actually provide, there's four commitments that we need to make, and I won't go through all four of those here, but um, there's we know from the research and from uh, personal experience, even uh, the, there are these four commitments we, we have to make and carry through on for trust to be restored. But I also have to share the caveat that what we've also discovered in the research is that, okay, let's say I get caught. I said a lie. I fibbed <laughs> um, and I got caught um, in, in, in an in a untruth. I own it. I apologize to my faculty and staff and or my employees. I say, you know what, I blew it. I, this, this was a moral failing on my part. Uh, and I, I promise you, I will never do that again. Now, it's going to take at least, the research shows us, probably about seven months for trust to be restored, so long as, again, making commitments, carrying through, et cetera, et cetera. However, what we've learned is if I lie again, it is irreparable. That's the time to just, you know, hand, hand in your resignation and move on. Uh, that, it, it, you're done. It, it's not going to be repaired. So if you broke the trust through a failure of yours, can it be repaired? Yes, it can. That's the good news, and I've seen it happen. However, if you do the same action again, that broke trust to begin with, not, you're done. It's, it's not repairable. And, and well, there is less than a fraction of 1% chance that it's repairable, according to the, the research. But you're basically, no, you, you've done it. You've blown it. Uh, life lesson, move on. And uh, so, uh, so again, sorry. I always like to throw that one in because um, it's not all pie in the sky. Uh, yeah. Yes, we can fix trust issues. It's possible. It's intentional. If it's intentional and time and effort and resources are committed to it, Absolutely. And the rewards are huge. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal on every level. 
Um, but um, so again, go remind me the, then where you wanted to go. Practical strategies. Oh, practical strategies, yeah. Oh, there's lots of them. Uh, I think one of my favorites is because I, I saw this turn around a school that I was working in and I had uh, stepped into a leadership role and I had a counterpart who um, was not very disciplined in how he used email to solve problems. And uh, we had a large conversation about this. And as a leadership team, we decided to implement a new uh, policy, uh, a norm, if you will, for our school. And it went like this, email is for information, not issues. And we made a commitment to not, to never uh, attempt to solve a problem via email or text. But rather, if there was an email or if there was a problem that came to us via email, our only response would be, thank you for sharing your concern. When can we talk? And we made the commitment to our staff, we will deal with all problems in person because we value you. We value our relationships. Because what we were seeing is with the text and the email threads, they were exploding and they were out of control and they were getting quoted and misquoted. And, and you know, you can't read between the lines. And when you see things in all caps, you feel like somebody's screaming at you, right? And people will say things in an email or text they would never let come out across the, you know, the, uh, their lips in, in person, or most frequently would not, or usually would not. So we made that commitment. Okay, here's our, our and we made it actually part of our grievance policy. You could not submit a grievance via email. Now you could document the grievance, but if you want us to address it, you got to come talk to us. Well, it was transformational, Dave. We literally saw a work environment transformed within really a very short amount. I would say probably less than two months. We saw what was a very toxic behavior going on with people just blasting people uh, in email or text. And when we said, no, you can't do that any longer here. That's not permitted. And if you continue to do it, you will be censured. Uh, I mean, we had to get tough about it, and, and I had to do it several times, and, um, but it was transformational. That practice, we saw also increased our level of trust. And so that's a type of strategy uh, that can be implemented to address behaviors that are destroying trust. It's value people, value conversation. Technology can be helpful, um, but don't be using... Uh, text and certainly not social media or you know messaging to solve problems. You got a problem? Let's talk. Let's value each other as people. In, in your book, you break down the complexities of a, a number of behaviors and skill sets that must be in place for trust to be present. Can you briefly share those with us? Sure. Again, like, again, we use, uh, and, I, and I say we, even though I'm the author of the book, because there were so many people that helped me with this project. Uh, uh, you'll see uh, a lot of them referenced in the book as well. Um, the, <laughs> excuse me. The development, again, of using a bridge as a metaphor has really helped because it is complex when we look at trust. So very quickly, and we've already mentioned foundation of trust or the foundation of the bridge, um, beliefs, values, uh, the substructure, connecting and supporting everything about uh, the bridge to our foundation. So connecting, supporting all that we do to our beliefs and values. In a bridge, there's bearings. Bearings are unseen uh, by most people, unless you know the architecture of a bridge. But in a suspension bridge, the bearings are actually the moving parts. And they, they shift based on payload, 
you know, wind, earthquake, right? There's, and, and the bridge stays up and, and functional because these bearings are flexible. Well, that's a skill set of leadership, this idea of being able to be flexible, but it, it's tied to being involved. So what we look at is what's the leader's level of involvement in the actual nuts and bolts of the organization. A leader can't be flexible unless they're involved, and that's what we call the bearings of leadership. The girders of leadership, so on a bridge, the girders are those beams that run below, they vary in size and, and width based on the needs of the bridge or if the bridge is you know, on a bend on a corner, if it's just a straight or you know, it's load capacity. Well, here what we're talking about is contextualizing. One of the gifts of trusted leaders is their ability to contextualize and adapt to the present current needs. And here I'll use the illustration going back. One of the struggles that I know my, my public school leaders really struggle with is the larger a district, the harder it is to contextualize and adapt to the needs of a campus. And what we find is every school campus is unique. It's just like I'm working with a large corporate client right now that I can't name, but uh, they have lots of outlets. And the problem is that they're trying to lead from headquarters, right? They're trying to say, you know, here's what we want every store or outlet to do. The problem is every store, every outlet, just like in education, every campus is unique. There are unique people being, you know, their needs being met. The employees look different. The culture looks different. And you have to be able to contextualize and adapt whatever the best practice is that you're looking to implement to that context. Well, that's the girders of leadership, being able to contextualize and adapt and yet support well. Superstructure of a bridge is that big edifice that you see from a long ways away. Well, what's the superstructure of leadership? It's relationships, it's culture. And what we've learned is trusted leaders are very intentional about it. There's an old marketing phrase that says, if you don't tell your story, somebody else will. And in our times today, the story is going to be negative if you let somebody else tell it. Uh, it's going to be destructive. It's just kind of how the world is. So you need to be intentional about building culture. You need to be intentional about relationships. And what do those skill sets look like in the substructure of leadership? And then finally, there's the deck of the bridge, which is just that flat surface that we want to be smooth. Uh, we want to be very clear what lane we're in, where we're going, uh, direction is clear, it, it looks simple. And what we've learned in bridge architecture and design and, and, and construction is the deck is anything but simple. It's actually quite complex. And I address that very briefly in the book. I spent about three months studying uh, you know, bridge construction. And what I discovered was, oh my word, what we drive over every day looks very simple, you know, flat surface with some lines on it. Very complex. A lot of science and engineering goes into making sure you've got the right materials, the right level uh, layers of materials. And then what we see as simple is very, very important. We've got to have clear signs of where we are, what's our side of the bridge, where we're going, clear markings. Well, those are all what I call the, the deck of leadership, order, clarity. These are communication skills, um, mission, vision. We know where we're going. Uh, we're, we're here. That's where we're going, and it's clear. Trusted leaders are able to take very complex elements and issues and communicate them in relatively simple terms. 
And but there you go. That's the deck of leadership. And tying those all together are the the suspension cables, and that's where we get into looking at uh, best practices. Uh, so when we look at okay, what what are the the actual skill sets, the competencies we need to hold all of this together and to flex uh, this bridge? Well, those are the best practices of leadership. Those everything from the skills of listening, you know, those those power skills, if you will, people skills, to actual skills within whatever it is the organization is about. So in schools, for example, you are not gonna have effective leaders if they are not knowledge experts on curriculum, instruction, assessment, and learning environments. That's the nuts and bolts of education. There was a movement some years ago because there is a vacuum of school leaders, there was a movement to just hire good managers from companies and bring them in. I mean, is that just what we need? Sounds, makes sense, right? Oh, we just need good managers. Well, yes, we do, but we need good managers who know our product. And what we found was good managers, the skills did not transfer if they did not understand education. It did not take the time and just to become education experts. Well, the same thing is true in any industry. It is more than just having good people skills. You've got to have good people skills tied to good content knowledge and expertise. You've got to know your business. And if you don't, well, then you're in the wrong business. So anyway, that all kind of ties together, but there you go. That, that was it. That was a master's course on leadership in six easy steps. One of the th things that came to mind when you were talking about the deck, the, the communication, um, prior to that, you were talking about, you know, a, a decentralized type of leadership where you've got a like a corporation where they're trying to lead uh, from headquarters to these uh, multiple outlets where the culture can vary. H how does an organization communicate effectively uh, when they're they're not there. Well, they they need to be there, <laughs> you know. And and today, I mean, look what we're doing right now, Dave. I mean, right now we have more opportunity, and we've all gotten a lot better at this. And we're going to get even more. I think this is just going to get uh, more and more the norm. Uh, the 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 Zoom calls, the go to meetings. Um, this is our new work environment. This is not going away. Uh, you know, there is there a movement back to, you know, uh, on, certainly on campus. Thank you. We, we love that, and and in person working. But we've got we've got tools at our fingertips right now that can help us with communication. So as far as the how to get it done. Now, there, there's really no excuse. There, we, we can connect and build relationships at a distance now like we've, we've never been able to do before. What's more important is, are we clear on, first of all, on our foundation? So do we have shared beliefs and values between the ownership and the employees? Is there true buy-in? Because if there's not, then again, we've got the wrong people. So it's all about, okay, do we really know what we're about? And is that shared? If it is, communication becomes really fast. And, and Covey talks about this, you know, when there's high levels of trust, the speed of trust, he talks about, and he's absolutely right. Trust just gets, and, and communication gets a lot faster. But think about it. If you don't, if I'm your boss and you don't trust me, 
you're always you're going to be double checking what I'm saying. You're going to be thinking, no, he, he's got there's an ulterior motive here. There's there's a sub, you know, there's there's skepticism. There's there's not quick buy-in, and and so you've got to fix that trust issue. But that begins by just ensuring, no, you've got the right people. You know, Jim Collins talks about the right people on the bus. Right? He, that's a wonderful analogy. Right? It starts there. Do you have the right people on the bus? Are they in the right seats? And are we all committed to where the bus is going? When those things are in place, oh, communication gets really fast. It gets really easy and because there's quick buy-in. One thing that I am a little curious about is it, it seems like this uh, exodus of teachers from public schools to private schools. And I'm wondering what you would relate that to. I mean, it, obviously there's the trust factor, but how is it that private schools are creating that more effectively than public schools? And can, can public schools overcome that? Well, don't we hope so, right? I mean, it, it, but it's huge, Dave. The problems and the challenges are, are huge and, and it's, it is systemic, uh, the challenges and problems for uh, the, the public sector. Now, there are challenges on the private sector too, but the reason they're able to flourish is because they have autonomy. Uh, they, they have freedom. And, uh, you know, when, when people have freedom to do um you know, as they desire, you also see higher levels of happiness and, and self-fulfillment, you know, so people want to work in an atmosphere where they feel like, no, they've, they've, they've got freedom to do uh, what they're passionate about. Um, what we find, you know, in the public sector, be, because our tax dollars go there, and again, I think it's, it's, it's a well-intended in, uh, idea of accountability, right? So our tax dollars are being spent here. We need to hold them accountable. Uh, and we need to have measurements to do that. Well-intended. Uh, no Child Left Behind uh, when that, years ago when that was implemented. I do believe it was a well-intended program. But the bureaucracy, the paperwork, um, the additional burden that placed on teachers without thinking and clearly through, okay, what are we going to take off teachers' plate before we give them additional work to do? You know, this is one of the things that we see in both the work uh, corporate environment and, and the education environment. Some new initiative comes along that has value, some new practice, best practice or implementation that we want to see adopted by our organization. Great. And, you know, that, that can be wonderful. But you always have to look at capacity to, to have success. And so what has happened, unfortunately, in the, especially in the public sector and to a certain extent, uh, less so in the, in the private sector, is we have all these expectations that we keep putting on teachers or on employees. It's like, okay, we want you to do this. We want you to do this. We want you to do this. And the next thing we know is that they, they were not a capacity to do all that we're asking them to do. And it's not what what drove them or gave them the flame to even get into education to begin with. You know, they were passionate about changing the lives of kids for their future and supporting them, right? And they, they love the interaction and the learning and that we layer and layer and layer upon them all these other elements. This is what takes the joy out of it. And, and that, that is true in, in the corporate sector as well. We have to look at capacity to succeed. Uh, many have talked about the principles of less is more. We find that those schools that are niche schools, uh, we're, no, we're going we're to be a fine arts school. This is what we're doing. 
And if your child has aspirations in the fine arts, this is the place for them to be, but they're not gonna provide everything. One of the, the real challenges in kind of the traditional American school model is we try to be all things to all people, right? And this idea of being fair and equitable, well, nice idea, almost impossible to do, and certainly financially a monster to try to meet the needs of all parents, of all aspirations of students. Yeah, really, really hard to do. So our cry for equity, okay, understand that, that we have kids with differing needs and differing aspirations, but to try to meet all of those on one campus, really, really hard to do. It, you know, this, it's, again, in the corporate sector, you know, trying to meet the needs and the wants and desires of all clients, nah, you've got to make decisions. Who's our clientele? Who are, whose needs are we meeting? Where can we excel and, and then go there? That is a model for success, even in the public sector. Uh, if, if schools can figure out, okay, this is, we, we need to specialize and we, we need to support well, we need to do less and do it better. This is what we are seeing internationally. You know, when you look at the schools in Finland or in Singapore, you know what, and they're, amazing things that they're doing, but what they're also doing is less. You know, they're, they're not trying to, you know, the, their schools are not necessarily providing robust athletic programs. And I'm, I'm pro-athletics, so I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that, but they're, they're letting community groups and community clubs provide that need for students. Their focus is, no, we're, we're doing an academic preparation program is what we're doing. We're here to make scholars out of our kids and they're doing it like nobody else in the world in less than half the time. Their school days are much shorter. They're much more focused and their professionals are highly trained and then uh, released to do their work as professionals. And what they're doing is, is stellar. It's very hard for us to, to take that model and bring it over into the US setting because that is not the DNA or the framework of the American school system. We have this expectation that no schools have got to you know, have robust athletic programs, robust fine arts programs, robust um, educational services programs. And yes, all those things are valid and valuable, but for a single campus to be able to be competent and excel in all of those, really hard, really rare, just as it is true in any business to be able to meet the needs of all customers and all clients. It just, that, that paradigm has to change um, for us to see sustained and ongoing improvement uh, in, in, in education and, and in the business world. It's who, whose clients do we want to meet their needs and, and also being uh, careful. You know, again, in the public sector, it looks different because we do have a responsibility to make sure kids don't fall through the cracks. That, that there are communities that are disadvantaged and, and, and vulnerable, and we must ensure that their needs are met as well. And I do believe that is the role of government. Um, although I, again, would be a fan that that's the role of the local government. Um, it is primarily their responsibility because they will have the best knowledge and ability to do that contextualization that we talked about earlier. So keep it local, um, but be intentional about looking out for the vulnerable and taking care of them as well. It's hard, it's complex. There's, there's not an easy solution. There's so many things going on in my head right now. I'm, I'm, 
because as you're talking and, and we're putting this in the context of schools and, and education, but there are so many parallels. You know, I come from the fire service and, you know, military background and it's all government run and how uh, there, there is bureaucracy in all of those organizations. And, but there's very specific things that they do. And, and I, so I see that, that parallel there where schools are trying to do the impossible. <laughs> well, and I get back to your comment about the public versus private and why are many teachers moving out of the public sector, even if it means going for even less money, you know, they're, they're already underpaid, but they're going to take even a, another, you know, a financial hit just so they can be in a more supportive work environment. And, and that's really the big factor. And, the, and that's, we've known that for years, the number one reason uh, teachers leave schools is because of a lack of support or perceived lack of support from their, their supervisor or their leader. Uh, and what is attracting uh, so many teachers to move into the private sector is there's just a greater level of support. And uh, I have a, a new teacher here at our school uh, this year. I was just, you know, doing my rounds in the hallways. and I stuck my head in her, her room. Uh, she was on a break, just asked how her school year was going. And she's like, I have never had this level of support ever. And I mean, and I know she took a significant pay cut to be here uh, because we can't afford to pay what the the, the public sector pays. And yet, why is she choosing to be here? Well, she loves to come to work. And, you know, and that's when you when you have that kind of environment, people produce better kids benefit, you know, the, so and again, back in, in the in the work environment, I'm sure even in your experience, when when men and women love to come to work, they're more engaged and they make the work better. And they, whatever the product is or the service is, it gets better if people love it. They enjoy it. It's their passion. You know, that, that's the secret here is create an environment for people to succeed and to fail, by the way. It also has to be a safe environment for them to make mistakes. You want innovation. You want people thinking, oh, how could we do this better? Yeah, let's try that. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, that we learn through that. One of my philosophies in education is we learn through failure. That's how the process works. So it's okay. Don't be shy about the failure. Let's be smart. Let's use data. Okay, let's get it. Let's be data informed. That's also one of my my passions, and I talk about in the book. That let's create and and secure data about our trust level to inform what we're going to do as far as next steps. Well, same thing in every level of our work, but let's let's allow people to work in an environment where yeah, they can try new things, they can, they can innovate, they can contribute to the growth, the expansion of the organization or of the company or of the school. And when they do, well, again, you get greater buy-in, the more ownership there is, the higher the level of performance. And it's, it's tried and true, but unfortunately, uh, it has to be very intentional and has to be constantly monitored uh, that those those elements are in place. That brings me to another question. You know, when you're when you're talking about data collection and you know establishing performance measure measurements, how do you measure the level of trust in an environment? 
Yeah, great question. Uh, actually, that was uh, part of what I jumped into in my doctoral work because it's like, okay, we we all know it's it's essential. And when we, you know, when studies have been done and surveys are done asking people, uh, what, you know, what's the level of trust in your leadership, et cetera. But, but how do you really get into the nitty gritty of it? Well, it comes down to uh, specific skill sets and behaviors. Uh, and we've actually been able to identify a, a concrete number of skill sets and behaviors that um, correlate to high levels of trust. So uh, we just uh, have created a uh, 360 assessment. It's basically, uh, so if I'm gonna have the 360 done on myself, uh, all of um, uh, my employees, or at least my direct reports, and perhaps beyond that, uh, they get to assess me. We've created a bank of 48 questions that basically says, how often does your leader, and then there's an electric scale of all these behaviors and, uh, that are tied to trusted levels of leadership. And, you know, it's, it's vulnerable. Uh, you, you have to be able to say, okay, come tell me how I'm doing. And actually that action creates trust just by saying, okay, I'm going to let you assess me because here's, here's the thing, Dave, what we've discovered is perception is reality when we're talking about trust. Okay, I actually had someone uh, commented on a recent LinkedIn post um, made the comment, oh, be careful with 360s, you, that you, you don't want to be surveying everybody. And I'm like, yes, you do. Everyone's perception, everyone's um, uh, opinion has value. You know, there's the old saying, consider the source. One of my mentors was great. He drilled into me, Toby, never consider the source take it all in, hear it all. It all has value. Now, you may not agree with it. You may be disappointed with what you're hearing, but it's their perception. Again, when we're talking about assessing trust level, it's all about, well, what do our employees think about us as leaders? It's all about their opinion and shaping their opinion. So again, we use, now there is no perfect tool, Dave, there is no perfect assessment tool. Um, and there are uh, several other tools that are, that are out and are available that leaders can use. Um, but uh, the one that we've developed uh, with TrustEd is uh, a fairly simple uh, tool in the fact that it can be administered in about 15 minutes. Uh, it's, it's done through a secure you know, online um, platform and folks get on their phone or on their device. They, they answer on a scale of uh, how frequently does my leader. And then there are these 48 prompts. And from that, it, it produces some really robust data for us then to talk to leaders about, okay, how do we change this perception? And, and even if you thought you were doing this well, it looks like according to this, no, that's not what your team thinks. So how do we intentionally make this better? Uh, but that that would be the, kind of the how for getting some initial data. There's other data points as well. Um, often when I'm working with an organization, I'll do a site visit and I'll do focus group um, meetings. So I'll meet with, well, we'll use the education sector. So uh, I'll meet with uh, focus groups of parents and students and employees and have a, a simple bank of questions. And I'm asking them one-on-one -on -one, and it's, a, it's another data point to be able to look at, okay, in these anecdotal conversations, what do we, what do we see pop up regularly? And that's usually what I'm looking there is, is there a thread here? Is there a theme? Uh, but that, that would be another data point that we could pull in. 
um, opinion surveys from um, from clients. Uh, that's that's another great data point to to pull in to look at the trust level as well. So there's 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 a number of ways to get at the data, and you always want to look at something that we call triangulation of data, which is what we've learned in statistical work is you must have multiple data points uh, and multiple sources. Uh, to validate the data. It's not just one source, but you want multiple points. And this is why even in a 360, why you want everybody. I, I want to hear from everybody because the more uh, individuals who have voice into um, the assessment, the more valid the results become. In, in my experience, when I've done uh, 360 degree evaluations, there were sometimes outliers. Yeah, where, sure. mm -hmm. and, and if you do it in an anonymous way, right. not knowing who it, that outlier is, it's hard to address. Do you have a strategy for addressing those outliers? No, but again, in my opinion, Dave, and I know there's those who disagree with me, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you've got this person employed and, and you're going to keep them employed, <laughs> yeah, they may be an outlay, may be the sour grape. Well, then for some reason you've got them there, you need to address whatever it is they're sour about. Uh, or, um, you know, maybe again, I, I always come back to, and I know it's tough in this season, especially because we're in such an employment crisis, but often we're, we're afraid to do the hard work of helping people find their happiness. That's the way I phrase it. You know, sometimes you you have employees who just need to find their happiness someplace else. They're just not they're not going to find their happiness here. It's like you need to help them find their happiness somewhere else. You know, have you hired the right people? And again, I always go back when, with those outliers, those those people who are oh, they're always upset, they're always angry. That you know, I, I'm going to have a values conversation with them, and I'm going to go back to the foundation. I'm going to say, are we aligned here? Are you committed to the same things that the organization is committed to? Are these passions for you? And I'm going to ensure that they're passions of the leader, because if not, I've hired the wrong leader too, right? So it always would go back to why are we here? What are we doing here? And, and if you're not in alignment with our core values, our core beliefs, our mission and our vision, you really need to find your happiness someplace else and have the hard conversation and get as Jim Collins says, get the right people on the bus. So outliers on 360? Yeah, that's the point of a 360. You're going to have outliers. So this is why you need the data then to look for, okay, what is the mean? Where, where are we seeing the, the, you know, the combining of all the, the um, oh, what's the, uh, there's, a, there's a statistical term, it's not coming to me right now, but you know, you, you come to uh, the composite of those scores uh, coming together uh, is uh, is the value of that, is that knowing, oh, there are people here that are on this end of the scale. Now, do you talk about those 48 behaviors that you use to measure uh, trust? Do you talk about that in your book? 
Sure, absolutely. And in fact, uh, you know, we can talk uh, and I can provide to you a link to a self-assessment tool uh, that we've created that mirrors the 360. Now, it is not data. It, it is not a you can't you can't truly assess your trust level uh, by yourself, but it is a great discussion starter. It's also a way for folks to see, OK, what would this kind of assessment look like? And so I can provide you a link you can share with your listeners. They can go and take a self-assessment. It pushes out a really simple little scorecard on the six components of trust on a 40-point scale, and it'll show them where, where they rate themselves. Again, it's not a true uh, assessment. I, I wouldn't build a professional development plan based on a self-assessment, but it would at least get the conversation going of, okay, this might be how we could assess ourselves. This is a, And actually, whenever we do a 360, I will ask leaders, go do the self-assessment and save your scorecard. Because when the 360 is done, we're going to do a comparison of what you thought about yourself and what your employees think about you. And then we often discover what I call the trust perception gap. You know, what we think of ourselves and what a 360 reveals often is, is quite different and very insightful. Uh, but it's a great way to, to actually see, okay, what would those questions look like, Dave? I'm happy to provide that to your listeners. And, and it's a free free tool. Uh, they can just go on and, and use it. Uh, there's a company called Schoolwright uh, that hosts uh, the assessment tools, and they've provided that service to us and anybody that I want to share it with for free. So uh, happy to share that with your listeners. Yeah, I'll, I'll have that in, in the show notes. Um, is, is there anything that, uh, that we haven't talked about, maybe in relation to your book or, or trust in general, uh, that, that you'd like to share with the audience? before we go? Well, I think I've been a little surprised. We talked about it a little bit before we started recording, you know, the, the attention the book has been getting from Forbes and Authority Magazine and CEO World Magazine. And I, I don't think I anticipated that, Dave. I, you know, I'm, I've worked with uh, corporations in the past, but I am predominantly, uh, you know, an academic. I work in the, in the school world, but I, I see how this resonates uh, and and it is universal and so i i, I do encourage um, organization business uh, corporate nonprofit leaders um, you know take a look at the book and and see what you think uh, I, I i think you'll find there's a framework here for improvement for any organization uh, but of course just realize all of the illustrations in the book are going to be within the education sector and, and no, again, just thank you for the opportunity to, to, to talk about the book's release and just to talk about my passion of um, seeing our organizations develop through the intentional development of trust in our leaders. Again, so many organizations that I talk to in schools, Dave, they recognize it, right? They'll be quick to acknowledge it. In fact, there's been several studies on this. 70% um, of school improvement initiatives fail. Corporate sector, 70% of new business launches fail. When you dig into the why behind that, it comes down to execution primarily. And then you need to, well, what part of execution? Leadership. So it is the number one indicator of success, but it's also the number one indicator of failure. So that the flip is true. And, and here's where I'm going. So if I, you know, I get one last pitch here is the mistake that I see schools and organizations make is they get this idea that, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna just hire the right leader and, and he or she or they will, will fix it all. 
without continually providing those leaders with assessment of their leadership, professional development support, and ongoing training for them, or even just coaching. You know, one of the things I enjoy the most has just been the um, the executive coaching role, and uh, and that. That is actually where most of the work is getting done as far as school improvement and organizational improvement. It's just having that ability of a leader to have a coach to walk alongside them. Don't assume that just because they've got the PhD that they've got it all figured out, right? They need support. So when boards and owners, you know, they hire their leaders and then just expect them to get it done without ensuring there's a level of support for the leader, it's a big mistake. Uh, so, um, for those who may be listening that are that are owners or on boards, make sure uh, your leaders of your organizations have support structures in place that are ongoing and not just a one or two day kind of PD. Make sure, no, they've got a consultant or a coach that they can contact and reach out to continually and, and make sure that support is there. Invest in them and, and in the ongoing development of their trust as leaders and you will see a return on investment that is huge. Uh, don't miss that step. Uh, what I learned, again, referencing back to Dave Horsager and his work you know, with Trust Edge, the big companies get it. They understand. You know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, they're already spending big money on this. Yeah, they get it. They know it. It is essential. It's, it's the smaller companies. It's the smaller industries. It's the nonprofits that... Uh, don't understand, oh, this needs to be a major line item in our budget every year is ensuring we've got support structures, assessment and professional development opportunities in place to make sure this is ongoing. And because again, the, the ROI or the return on investment is, is just huge. In fact, I'll close with this last stat. Uh, there was a study I saw recently that showed that companies that invest in this type of training um, they see a, a literal return on investment of $1.85 to $6.18 per dollar spent. So, I mean, that kind of return uh, on investing in this type of training and, and support has a monetary benefit to the organization, literally to the dollar. And uh, so don't overlook it. And, and, and I hear it all the time, David, well, we don't have budgets for that. Well, figure out how to find the budget, because if you don't, uh, you, you really aren't going to see sustainable uh, growth and development of your organization. Dr. Travis, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to walk me through all of these areas of trust and leadership and, and being so open to, to share with my audience. And for those listening, if they want to connect with you or, or follow you on social media or purchase your book, what, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Well, the website is trustedconsulting.org. So it's just all one word, you know, trustedconsulting.org. I'm on LinkedIn. You can just put my name in, Dr. Toby Travis, and you, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I do have uh, some of the other social media accounts less active uh, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but I'm there. You can find me there as well. The book is on Amazon, anywhere Amazon you know, has... Uh, uh, reaches and that's almost everywhere. Uh, you can find the book in um, in print or in Kindle. Uh, we currently have a, a Spanish version that's just about ready to be released. Uh, 
a lot of my work has been with developing and, and distressed uh, organizations and schools in places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And actually, I have a client in Honduras uh, that I'm working with. And so we're trying to get all the resources available in Spanish as well. Uh, the assessment tools are already available in English, Spanish, uh, Vietnamese, Bahasi, which is Indonesian. Um, and there may be one other language. Uh, so. Um, Sorry about that. Uh, the, the, the assessment resources are already translated and available in, in multiple languages. Uh, TrustedConsulting.org, um, LinkedIn, or find uh, the book on Amazon. TrustEd, The Bridge to School Improvement. So on your website, do you have links to your social oh, yeah. media accounts? It's all there. Sure. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I will have a link to your uh, I'll have a link to your website in the in the show notes, as well as the link to the assessment. Yeah, great. Now, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.